Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Would take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 8, verse 27. Uh, the theme of our message today is the normal Christian life, following and serving the King. And as you're turning there, we raise a question for your consideration throughout our time of teaching this morning. Did you come to Southeastern Seminary to die? Did you come to Southeastern Seminary to die? Actually, a better question is, when you came to Jesus, did you come to Jesus to die? Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27, we read this account of our Lord's life. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Pray with me. Father, take your word this day, plant it deep within my heart and also the heart of these that I love so dearly that we might indeed understand what it means to live the normal Christian life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What you think and believe about Jesus will determine how you both serve him and also how you live out your life. In fact, it may even determine how you die. Uh, There's no question that the former is going to impact the latter. And so if, for example, you are like a man named Robert Funk, who is a leader of the now defunct and infamous Jesus Seminar, and you think that Jesus was simply a subversive sage whose, quote, witticisms tended to undermine the everyday view of things, uh, you might admire him for his wit, but you will not worship him. Or maybe if, like Susan Haskins, you believe that Jesus was a feminist, 
well, then you will applaud his egalitarianism and you will applaud the fact that he was an advocate for women's rights and you yourself will pursue a similar kind of agenda and it will be an agenda that will radically affect uh, the way you look at marriage, the way you look at family, and also the way you look at church. Or maybe you are like uh, Bart Ehrman over at UNC Chapel Hill who said in his book, Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, uh, Jesus was a first century apocalyptic prophet who did expect the imminent end of his world. And drawing that conclusion, then you will also further conclude that Jesus uh, was wrong, that he did not rise from the dead. And you might even compare him to the Hal Lindsey's of church history who thought and believed that the world was coming to an end in their particular day. But there's another faulty perspective about Jesus that I think is far more seductive, far more rampant, and far more dangerous to the people who sit in the pews of your churches and that you minister to. And I believe this faulty perspective of Jesus was wonderfully and clearly exposed by our friend David Platt in his book Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. In fact, two days before Christmas of this past year, December the 23rd, David in a CNN belief blog said this, and in essence it summarizes the thesis of his book, we American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with, a nice middle-class American Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced. Who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes. And who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. This American Jesus that he exposes is not the Jesus of the Bible. It is not the Jesus of Scripture. It is not the Jesus who demands that you know him, that you trust him, that you follow him, and the Jesus who says, when you come to me, you come to die. This particular text that we're going to walk through this morning clearly has three movements, and it answers three important questions for us. One, who is Jesus? Two, why did he come? And three, what is my proper response in light of who he is and what he has chosen to do? Mark 8, 31 through the end of chapter 10, verse 52, has been referred to as the great discipleship discourse because there's a very interesting pattern that you find occurring three times. Three times, Jesus will predict his passion. And then three times immediately following that, Jesus will give some kind of insight into what it means to follow him and what it means to really be his disciple. Now you say, why does he have to follow each of his three passion predictions with three teachings on discipleship? Because disciples, like us, just don't get it. Uh, they are hearing but not hearing. Uh, they're seeing but not perceiving. For example, as we're going to see in a moment, here in chapter 8, after he says he's going to die, Peter rebukes him and says, that's not the way it's going to work out for you as the Messiah. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 34, they are in a big argument over who is the greatest in the kingdom. 
And then in chapter 10, verse 37, James and John beat the others to the punch, and they asked Jesus, let me sit on your left hand and let me see on your right hand. And so they had an absolutely misunderstanding, a gross caricature of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus does in these verses is simply informs us what the normal Christian life looks like tragically, what many would call the radical Christian life today. And so what is it that the normal Christian life will look like? Three observations. Number one, you must know and personally confess who Jesus is. That is the theme of verse 27 through verse 30. It says there in verse 27, Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So he takes about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. They're in a very pagan, godless territory where temple idols and pagan idols are scattered everywhere. And so he goes into what you could say is enemy territory for the first a human confession of him as the Christ. And so he is taking them on the way, and he carries them up into that region. And he says in verse 27, Who do people say that I am? Now, we have come to a very crucial turning point in the structure of Mark's gospel. In many ways, all of Mark 1 through chapter 8 has built toward this point and this moment. And following this confession, everything will change. The manner in which Jesus teaches will change. The urgency with which he is going to pursue his passion will change. And so he purposely takes them there. And he purposely puts before them this inescapable question. It is straightforward. There's no ambiguity. He simply asks, who do people say that I am? By the way. The disciples have been asking that question since uh, chapter 4 and verse 41 when Jesus calmed the storm and stopped the waves from raging. And even there at the end of Mark, they asked the question, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the disciples were in touch with the culture of the day, and so they knew what the popular opinions were. And so they respond and say, well, verse 28, some say that you are John the Baptist, and others say you are Elijah, and others say that you are one of the prophets. This, by the way, summarizes what was said previously in chapter 6, verse 14 through verse 16. John the Baptist, uh, that was the view represented by Herod Antipas, who was having nightmares that this was a person uh, who had been raised from the dead, formerly John the Baptist. So he thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others have said, uh, and we're saying, well, maybe he's Elijah. And, of course, from Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4, we know that Elijah would be the forerunner before the eighth great eschatological day of the Lord. And then others said, well, you know, uh, he's pretty incredible. Uh, he's pretty fantastic. He does some amazing things. So he's one of the prophets. And maybe even some thought he was that prophet prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 and verse 18. Now, here's what I would want you to note before we move on. All of these are outstanding evaluations. All of these are stellar assessments. They're all positive in terms of affirming who the people of the day thought Jesus was. And by the way, nothing's changed. Uh, he's still popular today. People still have very positive, affirming things to say about Jesus. I mean, he is the great moral teacher. Uh, he is the example that all of us should follow. And yet all these assessments have one thing in common. They honor him, but they misrepresent him. 
They honor Him, but they do not clearly articulate or define who He really is. And so Jesus decides to make it all personal in the next verse. And so He says in verse 29, But who do you say that I am? And here for the first time on human lips, we receive the declaration of the person of Jesus Christ, you are the Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark, the narrator, tells us he is writing a gospel about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And so we already know in advance what Peter now finally discovers here and the twelve at Caesarea Philippi. Furthermore, at the baptism in chapter 1, verse 9, God the Father says of him, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And by the way, if you really want to know who Jesus is, just go ask a demon. The demons never, ever, ever get it wrong. Three times already in Mark's gospel, the demons have confessed who Jesus is. Chapter 1, verse 25, you're the Holy One of God. Chapter 3, verse 11, you are the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And so now to those course of declarations, Peter adds his own and simply says, you are the Christ. Of course, we know that Matthew's account has it as you are Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. But Mark, for his purposes, is going to reserve that latter confession to the end of his gospel. In fact, it's very interesting. In the middle of his gospel, you are the Christ comes on the lips of a Jew, a man by the name of Peter. And at the end of his gospel, in chapter 15, verse 39, you find the confession, truly this man was the Son of God on the lips of a Roman centurion. So there's almost a sense in which half of the gospel is intended to help us understand he is the Christ. And then from this confession to the end, we're going to see that he is also the Son of God. In other words, Peter and the twelve buck the popular opinions and the trends of the day. They go in a different direction. No, he's not John the Baptist raised from the dead. No, he's not Elijah. No, he's not one of the prophets. No, he is the Christ. And in their day as in our day, we must always buck the popular trends and allow Scripture and Scripture alone to give us the clear and consistent witness of who Jesus is. James Edwards, who's written a wonderful commentary on the Gospel of Mark, says it this way. The categories of John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets are no closer to the real Jesus than are the various Jesus figures of historical criticism, enlightenment rationalism, feminism, Aryan and racist, racist theories, or the Jesus seminar, or the various sociological models in our day. And so when you and I personally, and by the way, you and I must personally answer the question, who do you say that I am? Don't listen to the media. Don't go with the popular theologians. You go back to the Word of God and you allow Scripture and Scripture alone to inform you concerning who He is. He is the Christ. You must know and personally confess who Jesus is. Now, number two. You must also learn and affirm the ways of God and not man. Verses 31 through 34 are what we could call hinge verses in Mark's gospel. 
I like the hinge of a door that swings back and forth. Everything has swung to this point, and now everything moves from it as we move our way through the remainder of the gospel. In fact, Tim Keller was very helpful to me on this point. He just laid it out so clearly in terms of the first half of the gospel, the gospel, our response, and the confession. Then he points out there's the second half of the gospel, there is the gospel, there is a response, and there is a climactic confession. So Tim Keller says you could divide Mark's gospel into two large pieces. The first half is answering the question, who is he? And the gospel tells us the king has come. What is our response? We're to repent and we're to believe. And from an insider, Peter, we learn he is the Christ. But the second half of the gospel asks the question and answers, what did he come to do? And the gospel in the second half is this, the king must die. Our response, take up your cross and follow him. And the second and great climactic confession from an outsider, a Gentile Roman centurion, truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus begins there in verse 31, and it says, He began. In other words, up to this point, though there are some veiled allusions to His death in Mark's Gospel, it is now that He speaks clearly and plainly. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man, number one, must suffer many things. Number two, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Number three, be killed. And number four, after three days, he would rise again. And he said this plainly. A king who dies is not what they expected. A king who dies is not what they wanted. But a king who dies is what they and we desperately, desperately needed. So Jesus begins a new chapter in the educational experience of the twelve. They, in essence, are now going to graduate from elementary school to at least high school, even though they're really not ready. Now, Peter got it right. He is the Christ. He is the Davidic son of uh, Psalm 2. He is the apocalyptic son of man of Daniel 7. He is going to usher in a kingdom that will be worldwide, cosmic, and that will last forever and ever and ever. However, God's way of doing it is going to be so different than they anticipated. It is going to be so different than what a world that exalts power would expect would be the means of a kingdom coming into being. But Jesus says there in verse 31, there's a particular word I want to emphasize for our instruction this morning. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must. Must. In other words, all that is going to happen, it must happen. It is is necessary. It is essential. Sometimes in theology, and I used to teach theology on a regular basis, we would get to the doctrine of the atonement, and we raise this question that theologians like to banter about. Did Jesus have to come and die or could God have saved us some other way? Did Jesus have to come and die or could God have saved us some other way? And some theologians uh, drew the conclusion, well, he's God. And so he could have done it some other way, but the cross was the most fitting way for him to do it. 
And though I appreciate uh, why they say that, I think it is absolutely and completely dead wrong. I don't think there was another way. I don't think there was another means whereby you and I could have our sins forgiven. I agree with Jesus. It must happen this way. It must to fulfill Scripture. It must because that's why He came. It must because only He could make sin's payment in this way. This is the only place where the law of God and the love of God come together and kiss. This is the only place where God's mercy and God's judgment indeed meet. You rob that word must of its import, and you rob the gospel of all of its power. No, it was not just the most fitting way. It was the only way. Now, let's get back to Peter. Peter was on board with Jesus as the Christ. He had no problem with that. However, his going to the cross was another matter altogether. And so, after Jesus begins to speak plainly in this way, Peter speaks back plainly to him in verse 33. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That is the same word, by the way, that earlier in Mark's gospel was used to talk about the rebuking of a demon by Jesus. And so Peter evidently, from the context, speaks up for the twelve, and he rebukes Jesus and says, No, 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 no. You, you, you are the Christ. That, that you are correct about. But the cross, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to work. Uh, that's not how it's supposed to flesh out. I've got a better plan than does God. Well, needless to say, Peter calling out Jesus was a bad move. And so the text continues. But turning, verse 33, and seeing his disciples. So in other words, don't just get upset with Peter here. Peter was just stupid again. Peter and the twelve had talked about this, and they're like, wait a minute, wait, 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 hold on, time out. You know, we just, you know, confirmed he's the Messiah, and he didn't deny it. In fact, from Matthew's account, he affirms it in every way. And so, but now he's talking this cross stuff and this, this death stuff, and that's not the way it's supposed to work out. Blah, 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 blah. All right, all right, all right. I'll go and straighten him out. And so like a apostolic moron, he goes and, and straightens him out. And verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, they're all over there watching Peter do the dirty deed to see what the response is going to be. And oh, is their response, Jesus rebuked him. Same word that Peter used against Jesus. It's an imperative, a command. But turning and seeing disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but you are setting your mind on the things of man. Jesus treats Peter just like he's Satan. He treats him just like he is a demon-possessed man. And in some ways, he certainly was demon-influenced after all. The deal that Peter wants to offer Jesus is the same deal that Satan offered him in the wilderness when he tempted him and said, all the kingdoms of the world I'll give you, and all you've got to do is drop the knee to me one time, and there's no cross in my program. There's no cross in my agenda. I've got a much better way to get you your kingdom than does your father. And yet, you know, if we're not careful... We, we can poke our finger in an accusatory way at Peter and fail to realize that that finger probably ought to be curled and pointed right back to us. I watch seminary students. I've been watching them now for more than almost two decades. And I see students that come here that uh, 
are glad to do God's will as long as God's will fits their agenda. Oh, they're glad to serve God as long as God lets them serve where they want to serve and serve in the manner in which they would like to serve. In other words, they are glad to enter into the ministry as long as they can determine how they serve and where they serve. And in essence, they conjure and uh, want to control Jesus just like Peter did. And in essence, they say, I'll serve you, Lord, as long as it's on my terms. You see, I've got, I've got a better way. Amazingly, I see things you don't see. I know me better than you know me. I know my gifts and abilities better than you know me. And so they manipulate. And they actually believe that when Jesus called them to serve him, he called them to serve themselves. I'll just be very blunt. As long as I get to go back and serve in my home state, I'll serve you. Oh, no, as long as I get to serve within, you know, 20 to 25 miles of mommy and daddy, I'll serve you. Many times prospective students come to see me and they'll come with their parents. And I guess I'm just crazy in terms of student recruitment, but I'll tell their parents, I want you to know something. I hope that God doesn't send them back near to you. I hope God sends them to an unreached people group around the world, and that's where he puts them. And, of course, they look at me, and, they're, and, they, and I said, and if they're not committed and willing to do that, then I just hope they don't come here. I hope they go to another seminary. And the fact of the matter is, if you're here today and you have got to serve God on your terms, you really would do the kingdom of God a, a big service by going back across the uh, walkway see the registrar, withdraw, and go home. Because as we're about to see, God doesn't call us to serve him on our terms. He calls us to serve him on his terms, and his terms always involve a death. The text says, Peter, get behind me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, which leads us to our third point. You must understand and accept that Jesus calls you to deny yourself and die for his sake and the gospel. God's ways are often hard, like in this text, but they're clear. And God's will is often a challenge, but it's always perfect, like here. And now God says to you and to me, you want to follow me? Well, here's what it's going to involve. It's going to involve a death to you. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him and with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, three things must take place. Let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. Jesus begins by saying, You must deny yourself. You give up your right to self-determination. For those of us here today, you give up the right to determine where you will serve and how you will serve. That's not your call. That's not your job. And to try to do so is to rebel against the king and not serve him rightly. Now, as John Piper has taught us so well, you need to treasure and value Jesus more than you value yourself. More than you value your plans, your comforts, your goals, and your aspirations. I like to say it this way. Danny Aiken daily, as do all of you, needs to put to death the idol of I. And put it down. Deny yourself. Secondly, take up your cross. I like what Luke says. He says, take up your cross daily. In other words, you've got to die. 
You've got to die, and you've got to die daily. Now, can we be honest for a moment? Deciding to die is not normal. That deciding to die is not natural. But it's absolutely necessary if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. Furthermore, and Tim Keller showed this to me, death on a cross is always a slow death. And it's always a painful death. And yet that's the death that Jesus calls you and me to. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It involves a death death to what I call the self-centered life. But secondly, it is also a death to the safe life. Verses 35 through 38, if you mark your Bible, you ought to mark the word for because it occurs four times. And the word for is going to give the rationale. In other words, why would you tell me, Jesus, to deny myself? Why, why would you tell me, Jesus, to take up my cross? Why would you tell me to follow you and only you? And here are the reasons. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Second four, verse 36. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Third four, verse 37. Four, what can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38, fourth four. Four, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels. And so Jesus begins there in verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Save or treasure your life, your soul above all else, and you're going to lose it. Value yourself more than Jesus and eternal life, and you will lose both Jesus and eternal life. But in contrast, lose your life, give your life, die for Jesus. And by the way, only Mark adds the phrase, the gospel. I think it's because you cannot separate dying for Jesus and dying for His gospel. And so if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, then you will gain it. C.T. Studd was a wonderful missionary to China and India and later to the Sudan where he died. And C.T. Studd said it this way, We will dare to trust our God. And we will do it with His joy, unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. And so you die for Jesus and His gospel, and you gain everything. But your life is also now set free to live what I call the normal, what the world calls the radical Christian life, verse 36 through 38 as we move to close. You now are embracing what Paul summarizes in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You've got two rhetorical questions there in verse 36 and 37. 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Answer, he gains nothing. It's a great big zero. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his soul? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing you can exchange for your soul. And so verse 38 kind of capsulizes it all. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory with his Father, of his Father and with his angels. John Piper preached a message right before he took his extended sabbatical last year. And in that message, he dealt with this particular text. 
And in that message, he spent some time on verse 38, and so I don't think I can improve upon it, so listen to what Dr. Piper says about verse 38. What's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? Being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed to be seen with them, loving to be identified with them. So Jesus is saying, if you're embarrassed by me and the price I paid for you, and he's not referring to lapses of courage when you don't share your faith, but a settled state of your uh, mind toward him. If you're not proud of me and if you don't cherish me and what I did for you if, you, if you want to put yourself with the goats that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me, then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you and you will perish with the people who consider me an embarrassment. One of my heroes is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German pastor and theologian hanged by the Nazis just a few weeks before the liberation of that country. He wrote many wonderful books, but his classic that all of us should read is entitled The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, Diedrich Bonhoeffer clearly understood what it means to live the normal Christian life. He understood what it means to live for and serve a king whose name is Jesus. He clearly understood that God's ways are not always easy, but they're always best. And so as I close, listen to this short section from The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with His death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then His most famous statement, When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Now... It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Jesus summons to the rich young man who was calling, that Jesus' summons to the rich young man was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lust. But we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. And thus the call to discipleship, it means both death, but it also means life. Did you come to Southeastern Seminary to die? I hope so. For you and for me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that this text reveals to us clearly who you are. It shows us clearly why you came. And it also 
clarifies for us what is our rightful response in light of who you are and what you've done. And it's very clear. The rightful response is to die. Die to my dreams. Die to my ambitions. Die to my goals. Die to my comforts. Die to all that Danny Aiken might want. That I might live for Jesus and the gospel. And Lord, until all of us die, we really can't live. And until all of us die, we will not see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. It is not by accident that Mark has Jesus saying that if we die for your sake, Lord Jesus, and the gospel, we will gain our lives. And Lord, many others will gain their lives too. Dying is not easy. It's not normal or natural. But it is necessary for those of us who would truly follow Jesus. May we this day die that we might truly live. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.